Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Latinos powering Boston's economy, police officers against Texas's anti-immigration law, and what exactly is the language of baseball? The latest Latinx news happening locally and nationwide. Later in the show, how medieval literature inspired a young rapper and his Harvard thesis project. I imagine black people telling their own stories as being ordinary black people, going on the kind of metaphorical pilgrimage of being black in America. Obasi Shah tells us how his mother, his faith, and his love of Chaucer helped him create his album, Liminal Minds. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and the founder of Latino Rebels. Hello again, Hey, Callie, how are you? (laughs) And Marcela Garcia, bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist, and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Welcome back, Marcela. Hi, Callie, thanks. Well, we have to jump right in to this big report by the Boston Foundation called Powering Greater Boston's Economy, why the Latino community is critical to our shared future. The overarching points are that the population of Latinos in Boston is huge and the impact on the economy is also huge and has really perhaps not been recognized. And there are some other systems that need to be in place to help some people get some services that they need and uh, particularly in the area of education. So those are the big takeaways. But I wanted to get from you what you think about the report. First from you, Julio. First of all, it's great to see a report. I'll, I'll give you that. Was there anything in the report? I guess I know too much, and I'd love to hear. This is the type of conversation I want to have. It didn't really tell me much. It kind of said, Boston Latinos saved the population in Boston. Oh, and by the way, there's a huge gap. And, you know, it's a very, like, almost this underclass of Latinos. And there's no access to higher paying jobs. Duh. Like, we've been talking about this as a second class, you know, Latinos being a second class citizen group in this city and there was all it said was we should increase the talent pipeline and i just thought it was a lot of it was really good to educate but i guess i'm so far ahead of it that i kind of was like okay now what are you gonna do i mean i I, well let me ask this question before marcella weighs in is there some value and if so you to tell me how much value there should be on acknowledging and documenting and putting it out there. Yes, there is incredible value. And I think it's great that people know that. And, and, you know, things about the fact that, you know, Latinos had a GDP of one billion in 1980. Now it's nine billion in 2014. I don't think a lot of people know that 30 percent of children in Boston are Latino and they continue. You know, it's a growing population. But I think that the issue of segregated neighborhoods, access to high paying jobs, Latinos as the underclass, as the service industry in Boston, hmm. it kind of was there. But it wasn't like, oh, let's create a talent pipeline. OK, but how do you create a talent pipeline when when there's no access? So I guess okay. that's the bigger question I have. OK, Marcella. So uh, two things. 
this isn't the first time that this is documented, obviously, like mm -hmm. Hulu has, is saying there. Yes, there's value in that. And second, it's not so much that we are so far ahead in knowing this. It's mm. that the rest, they haven't caught up. And so to me, I find it incredibly problematic that there are still people in Boston, in media, in covering this when people say, and I'm not talking obviously about yeah. you because yeah. you know this, but mm. there are still other people in media that, oh, I didn't know about this. Mm. <laughs> oh, exactly. 93% of the growth of the population in Boston since 1980 is due to, I didn't know that. Wow. Then we talk about the gaps. Yeah. And why are we surprised that mm -hmm. there are gaps if there's people who didn't know about this? And of course, it, you know, there was an event. The Boston Foundation had an event to present this. And there were some civic leaders there. There were some Latinos there, obviously. And two takeaways from me from that event were, A, you know, it all comes back to representation, obviously. Mm -hmm. Latino representation in business, in government, everywhere, right? And number two... We, here we have the biggest foundation in the state, and where is the funding to Latino-serving and Latino-led organizations? Yeah. So those were the themes that I that I heard. And so, again, it all comes back to representation. We have the highest income inequality. Boston is the high, the, has true. the highest income. Yeah. And this is why. Right. One in every five residents in Boston is Latino. You're telling me people still didn't know that? And there are people that didn't know that right. already. And also the saving, I think the biggest point that the report says is like, Latinos save Boston in a lot of ways. It's almost like mm -hmm. within that 20-year gap from 1980 to 2000, it's like no one was here, but guess who was doing all the work? And now, because Boston's now this like, now, you know, the waterfront and people are coming back and there's a re renaissance in Boston. You know, it was almost like they held, like Latinos held the bag and then all of a sudden the bag got taken away. And like, you're still like, look at the jobs. It was so striking to see like, the fact that Latinos are so represented in the, in the service industry, it's like yeah. every stereotype that you hear, it's like there. And then you're saying like, yeah, Boston. And I, I tend to, and I agree with you, Marcelo and I have talked about the Boston Foundation, and I think I actually tweeted them like last year about it and caused problems. But it's about representation. It's about like there are people out here in Boston that have been doing this work for decades. They're not at the table, Callie. Yeah. And like, yeah. and I think there's this sense of like, Either you're going to wait to grab that power or you're going to wait for someone to give you permission or you're just going to do it on your own and cause problems and cause waves. And I guess that's where we're at. Hmm. And, you know, one last point. There was, again, one of the themes from this is like, why is there a lack of urgency in, in all? Why, hmm. you know, now you're showing this, but there's a, and so there was the commissioner of uh, higher education in the state, Carlos Santiago, was there and he made incredibly excellent points about the state of our uh, public higher education system and how 70% of all people of color who graduate with a college degree here in Massachusetts come from a public university. And why is there not in government that urgency of investing in our higher education system, again, public, public universities, right. the community colleges, etc. So, you know, I find it encouraging that this is on the news, that this is creating waves. I hope the momentum gets sustained. I get encouraged by the fact that there are a couple of events coming, too, that will, I hope, help sustain the momentum. One is a couple of years ago, there was a group that was formed of Latino leaders, and they came out with a report that showed it was called The Silent Crisis, and it mm. showed the incredibly lack of representation of Latinos in city government. And they, they looked at Chelsea, they looked at Boston. Next week, this Thursday, they're going to show an update and they're going to see or, or show 
how the situation where we are where we are mm -hmm. exactly in Boston and Chelsea. The other is another event on Saturday with Maria Hinojosa as the speaker. My boss. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, give a shout out to Maria. And um, it's an event geared toward increasing representation of right. Latinos, but not just in government, like, you know. Across the, the board. Across the yeah. board. The pipeline we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. in boards, mm -hmm. in um, right. all these type of networks and, and places at the table that we should be at. Um, and so that promises to be also, so that's happening on, on the 17th at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute. And that promises to be, again, Hopefully, an event that would help sustain this momentum to show Boston leaders, again, in business, in government, that, you know, and we also are here. To, some actionable items as opposed to some acknowledgement. Exactly. Yeah, so it's so like, we got to create a type of Right. Duh, like, okay. got it. Got How it. do you do it? All right. <laughs> well, let me move on to a, a story that I think really taps into this whole question of representation. And that's what's going on in Lowell, mm -hmm. where there is a lot of conversation now about dismantling the majority rule voting system there. There's a lawsuit in federal district court, which, as the Globe article points out, shows ample evidence of racially polarized elections. And here's what the Globe says. In 2013, for instance, two Cambodian-American candidates running for city council were ranked as first and second choice candidates candidates in precincts with heavy Asian-American and Latino populations. But in white areas, they were ranked 17th and 18th out of 18 total candidates and lost. So the question is, in communities of color, and there is a significant uh, number of Latinos in this area as well, uh, are getting squeezed out of the positions to lead, mm -hmm. the government positions to lead, which brings us full circle back, back to the whole pipeline question we just discussed and the issue being representation. I just wanted to get your way in on what you think about what's happening in Lowell with this lawsuit. And by the way, it was filed by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Which it's an organization that's doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. They're basically suing everyone and their mother, and I love it, <laughs> here in Boston. And, 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 the, and these are issues that affect minorities as much as blacks and Latinos, too. But this is long overdue. I mean, it's been proven all over the country that at large system, a system that, that just has at large representation as opposed to wards or districts, really dilutes minority votes or minority representation. And, and as we move to more diverse or we have more minority-majority cities and more diversity, this is a real problem. This is why everyone's been moving away from at-large systems. And, and so it's it's really long overdue. It, the situation in Lowell is pretty... I mean, you have basically a bunch of white people from only like a handful of areas in Lowell deciding all issues of city government without paying attention in to... In a city that's like incredibly like... Half of, yeah. half of the population is either, you know, Latino or Asian. Right. right. And has been for a long time. And it's not that people haven't been running. So this Exactly. Is, well, I'll be interested to watch this to see how this comes out because there are, you know, sometimes you don't hear from people from those communities saying anything because they're trying not to rock the boat. But there have been a lot of conversation from folks in those communities saying, yep. no, this is going against representation. We have to and that's speak values. up about it, it. I think people yeah. do need to speak up about it. Right. And I think... It's incumbent upon people of color, communities of color, journalists like ourselves to to say this is a nice it's like the Boston report It's like, yeah, nice and shiny object. But there's several questions. The same thing about political representation. If your voice is not being heard, then you need to go out and say that. And I applaud anyone who's who's doing that in Lowell. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe. And we're talking about a variety of topics. The next one I'm going to move into has to do with the anti-immigration law that was passed in Texas. Mm -hmm. And now you may ask, now why are we talking about Texas as we're here in Massachusetts? Because this really has a precedent for the rest of the nation. And a couple of things are happening there. First, a couple of prominent groups have already pulled out of Texas saying we're just not going to, you know, have our meetings there because of this law. The American Immigration Lawyers Association was one of them. I do note, however, that South by Southwest, which is very well known Mm -hmm. and in Austin has said right now they're not going to pull out. So just want to put that on the table. But here's the piece that I wanted to talk about, and that is police chiefs there Mm -hmm. are opposed to this law. So when we hear the conversation about these, and and to be clear about what the law is, it's sort of a show me your papers. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody can pull you over and say, who are you? Let me make you you demonstrate to me that you actually live here. In many other places, this has been tried, Arizona particularly. And incredibly, as many people have said, well, it's racist. (laughs) I mean, because uh, you end up profiling people and you just just can't get around. Yeah. And. The point is that usually you have the cops saying, hey, yeah, but we think it's good, blah, blah, blah. These are police chiefs in Texas saying, yeah. no, bad, yeah, metro- bad Mostly me- yeah. metropolitan police chiefs like in Houston, mm-hmm. yeah. in San Antonio, uh, I believe El Paso. But a couple of things that people need to understand about this bill. And, you know, this has been percolating. And, and it actually came as a result of sheriffs like in Austin, for example, who were fighting the sanctuary cities. So Governor Abbott, who's the Republican governor of Texas and the legislature, passed uh, Senate Bill 4. It's getting a lot of opposition, and and it's actually probably a moment in Texas that it's going to be a really interesting moment in Texas to see as this growing Latino population becomes more the majority in Texas and more politically engaged, is it going to be the next Arizona in terms of boycotting, Mm. right? So you see, obviously, AILA, which is the Lawyers Association that pulled out that that's point. But what the police chiefs are saying is that this is all about trust. And it's a comment that you hear mayors say around mm-hmm. the country about sanctuary cities, the whole debate. But it's about trust. Like, let me just give you one specific example in Houston. And I actually talk about it on the In the Thick podcast. Mm-hmm. But in Houston, the cases of domestic violence have, have, have been reported less by Latinos around the time of SB4 was being passed. Because in essence, people feel like if they contact law enforcement, they're going to be asked for their immigration status. So that's a big thing. And to see city police officers who in the end, if you, like people think like they're being political, they're not. I mean, let's look at Dallas. Remember what happened when Black Lives yeah, Matter? It's like right. they're not being political here. They're being like realistic about how to deal with trust and reporting of crimes in their own city. So this is about experience. Right. And to see police chiefs speaking out is quite telling. Yeah. What I wanted to point out is that this is probably going to end up or is going to get struck down by the courts like Arizona was in Mm. in its time. And and they're already most of the mayors of the most important Mm -hmm. cities in Texas have already sued. And so it's probably going to end up there in the courts and probably going to different kind of Supreme Court, though. Now It's true. It's true. Um, (laughs) But it's absolutely horrific. The fact that Perhaps a boycott, like, you know, when I was thinking about a boycott, like, I, I can help but remember what happened with the bathroom bill. It essentially drove, like, a boycott right. really, like, drove a lot of um, the opposition and eventual, you know, of in, in, in North Carolina. So, you know, maybe we'll see something like that here. Maybe we won't. But I think it's something that, like you say, 
could very well set a precedent for other and, yeah, I think states. people are looking at this very and well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and the South by yeah. Southwest boycott that turned it on, I, I just find, I just needed to say this one point. It's like two senators, Senator Menendez and Cortez Mastos, Menendez from New Jersey, Cortez Masto from, um, from Nevada, sent this letter to South by Southwest saying, don't hold this event in mm-hmm. Austin. Send that message. It's what you're saying, Marcella, mm-hmm. about like the protests, like the NBA protests in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So South by Southwest and also the mayor of Austin both write these letters like, oh, we totally agree with you, but that's but, not the right decision. Like, right. it was almost like this, like, sorry, Latinos, like, that's, we're not going to go all the way. And it does bring issues in, even in progressive right. Austin, where, like, when you're trying to challenge, and there's people that are pulling for this and saying, like, let's remove businesses from Texas. And Austin is one of them. They're like, no, it'd be unfair for Austin. But there's something to be said about that to say South by Southwest to pull out of Austin for SB4 would would be global. Yeah, right. That would be huge. Huge. But also people should note that in terms of South by Southwest, there is a huge amount of participation of Latinos of some note on their programming. Absolutely. So this is going to be very interesting to see if people step away from South by Southwest as their own personal comment about it. It's so and that so it may end up having a kind of close to the same Latino organizations that are looking at, at boycott. Texas, besides the lawsuits at Marcella, like right. LULAC and MALDEF, but there's talk about Arizona-type boycotts that are starting to percolate in Texas. Right. Now, on Latino Rebels, Julio, <laughs> <laughs> um, the title of your piece says, Two old and aging ex-baseball players have issues with baseball players not speaking English. And we really have to talk about that. So, um, because it's a great headline, huh? yeah, it's a great. Well, there's a part of it that um, Andrea told me I could not read, and I did not read uh, because it means something else. So I didn't yes. read it. <laughs> but anyway, yes, exactly. I'm glad you, you edited yourself. Yes. No, that was Andrea. She yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in any case, uh, my point is that this is a this was an interesting conversation, even in our little newsroom about what do we mean. So explain the scenario and then respond. To um, it. Obviously, people. The local angle, Jerry Remy, previous week against the Yankees, Red Sox announcer mm-hmm. for Nesson, got into a little heat on social media. And it, it actually became sort of this lo- little local Boston topic before the Comey hearing about a Japanese reliever for the Yankees. Uh, they brought out a translator and he was like, I find that they, I, that should be illegal, even though Major League Baseball allows for translators yeah. since 2013 and 14. And basically said that he should learn the language of baseball Whatever that means. I was just going to say, what does that mean? It's, yeah. it's a euphemism for something else. Right. Obviously. And then Mike <laughs> Schmidt, who's a Hall of Famer, I don't know, at Philadelphia Phillies, basically said that outfielder Odubel Herrera, who's from Venezuela, couldn't lead the Phillies because he can't speak English. And he, you know, American ballplayers couldn't do anything. Anyway, Schmidt apologized after, like, he got a lot of heat in Philadelphia. And even Herrera was like, dude, like, even Herrera said, I don't agree with you. And, like, just let me play baseball. But Jerry Remy, he just got... He apologized. He did apologize. And, like, but it took, like... The next day, yeah. yeah, Like, Schmidt, like, (laughs) did it, like, quickly. and, And Remy was like... But I just thought it was interesting, at least from a Boston perspective, because... Not to get back to the Boston report, but like yeah. Boston Sports Radio, of which I'm a fan, it was like all white male dudes talking about this issue and saying, ah, you're being over the top, you're being reactive. And like, there wasn't like one Latino voice, there wasn't like a real voice of color out there saying, hey guys, do you not realize that like 30% of Major League Baseball players are all foreign born? And guess what? The train has left the station a right. long time ago when it, Major League Baseball is a global, multicultural, multilingual game. So right. like, get over it. Yeah, how did uh, Marcella? Did you want to add something to that? I just cannot believe that Jerry Remy went there. I, I just, but he speaks to 
the type of atmosphere that mm. is allowed and, and that the fact that he felt that many, many, many of his many people in his audience would totally agree with him. And that's this is how they think. I mean, think about what happened in Fenway just recently with yeah. the, the incident yes. with the racist remarks. The fact that this ballpark and by the way, the has... the Red Sox came out right away and said, yeah. we do not <laughs> right, have totally. to do with that. You know, go ahead. Mm. But the fact that there's, there's still that atmosphere, like that you feel... That these people feel like that that they can do that and get away with it, and and again, Jeremy didn't have to apologize until the next day, right? But there's that that's the atmosphere, that's the environment there that you can still say these things and know that there are people who think like you, like you know, what do you public, mean by? Yeah, and he said it, like he said it on live television, right, like, right, it's right. It's in your head, and then you say the language of baseball is like. What is the language of baseball like? Is that the code word for like learn English? Absolutely, now? Like, that's, that's what exactly it was. what he. That's meant. what it was. That's exactly what he. Whatever meant. you say, like even Dave O'Brien, like the, his was like, dude, what are you getting? Like he was trying to save him. And All like, right, so let me just right. ask this question in case somebody's saying, well, what if he meant like pitching? You know, I know nothing about sports, so I'm going to sound really ignorant. Like, you know, well, throwing a ball think, a certain way or whatever. Does he think that There's he doesn't know the language of baseball if he is a reliever for the Yankees? Exactly. Like, what is he? what has he been playing for all this time in Japan? You know, yeah. it's just he's just been using a different actual language. Yes. Which is Japanese. Right. And when he comes here with the Yankees, he needs a translator, and they're and discussing the in detail. It's what not he like the do. and the coach and for the coach of the Yankees, like the pitching coach, should be like, "Yeah, I need to communicate, and I need the translator because it's we're losing this game or whatever the game was." Like, I need to tell him certain things that I can't yeah. say in Japanese. So what? Baseball, like old white baseball dudes, well, need to get over this. That, I'm sorry. that baseball like, has to be played yeah. in English. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like, it's like oh, it's Why? like it's not the seventies right. anymore. And guess and Latinos and Japanese players and Asian players. Are saving the game, right? They're well, saving true. the game, guys. Again, there's a reason why this pitcher is with the Yankees. Yeah. Well, all I can say is <laughs> let me let me get a job for my nephew who speaks fluent Japanese there you there you go. Go. <laughs> and lives in New York City. That He'd would be, be happy that's to a sweet job. That's <laughs> he a would sweet be happy job. To translate. <laughs> anyway, uh, let me move on to speaking of language. Justin Bieber. <laughs> this is just so crazy. So there's a song called Despacito. It's like the hottest song in America. Right. I want to play a clip of the the real song, and um, it's Louis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee's song, and they did a remix featuring him, and then after we hear that, then I'll come back and say what the issue is. Despacito So catchy. Such All right. a good song. Never right. song in America. Such All a right. good song. Well, that's <laughs> good. So the part of the remix features Justin Bieber, and he seems to be speaking Spanish quite well. And so everybody's like, yay, this is great. You know, crossover, excellent, you know, proper respect. Then he was asked to sing it in New York City at One Oak, and it was clear that I guess he had just read it off a sheet or whatever, which is fine. You People do that. But he didn't know the words, and he decided he would fill in. Um, so here is Justin Bieber singing along to Despacito at One Oak in New York City. Despacito. Okay, so Justin Bieber, in case you couldn't make that out, is saying, I want a burrito. Words like Dorito, because he didn't know the actual 
words that he should be saying. And a number of people have taken offense to that on so many levels. So, Marcella? I mean, it's Justin Bieber. What what did I expect of Justin Bieber? (laughs) Did I expect anything? No. So, you know, did I get offended? No. You know, it's just like, come on, it's Justin Bieber. You know, he should be grateful that he stumbled upon this opportunity, you know, to talk to to sing with. Because, again, like you said, this was a song by Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee originally. And, And the original one is also super nice. I actually prefer that one. And then Justin Bieber comes in and decides to steal this, you know, their thunder, which is just as well, whatever. Right. And then he, but whatever. I, again, I did not get deeply offended by this. It's Justin Bieber. Some people, Julio said they are offended by the mockery of the language. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. And, and also, Luis Fonsi actually talked to Rolling Stone and basically said, it's a tough song in Spanish. For Which me. is not. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying what Luis Fonsi so said. He was giving him a little out. He's giving him a little out. They're all making money. Like it's right. the, it's the hottest say? song in America. Right. It's almost unfair to ask him because right. what is he going to so say? Anyway, so anyway, so Luis Fonsi has defended it. But at the same time, I think you have to look at it from the context. It's the first Spanish yeah. language song since La Macarena mm. to be number one in America in the time of Donald Trump. That's crazy. Okay, so let's like in the time we're talking about this English only and like make America great again, which is incredibly ironic. By the way, two Puerto Ricans, right? (laughs) One's a reggaeton star. (laughs) Luis Fonsi is this sort of romantic guy who like recast. So like it's a great story. Bieber, like Marcelo says, loved the song so much that he did an English version and he told Fonsi, "I want to do it." And Fonsi's like, "Yeah." So like, there's like eight. There's a salsa version of the (laughs) song. There's so many. So anyway, (laughs) but the fact that Bieber. I'm like, dude, you got like a gold plate of like success and then you're mocking it. And like, I can understand why mm-hmm. some people were like, because he was getting a lot of love right. for like doing in Spanish. People like he sang in Spanish and it was really good on, on the recorded version. So people are like, oh, my God, Justin Bieber, like this is so cool. But then t- to take it and then like make fun of it. Right. Like I can see why some, you know, the thing is, it is Justin Bieber. He owns the Internet. So yeah, like when people. Just hum, though. He, he could have just hum, though. He could have just been like, you know, I, learned I completely forgot right. this part. I and learned I, it and for I, the recording. Yeah. And I'm an English speaker. But it was just kind of like being jokey about it. And I can understand why some people were like, dude, you're kind of like riding our coattails on this Spanish language song, which is and so successful. You're learning off the success. Why do you have to mock us? Right. And like, so I get it. I get why people yeah. like no, would want to speak out. Plus, it's Justin Bieber being another bad boy and, exactly. at another time. It's so. just like it, it's but just it's still so. A catchy yeah. song. All right. Well, oh, maybe I the controversy will bring more attention to it because it's very popular, as you said. So <laughs> there you go. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I am speaking with the folks talking about our Latinx roundtable, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe. Now, here's something interesting. There was a local state senator here in Massachusetts who got in trouble for alerting, allegedly alerting folks in her community about what to do if Mm -hmm. ICE approaches you. In Chicago, they've done something interesting. They come up with a (laughs) ringtone in Spanish, which translated from the Spanish lyric says, if immigration comes to arrest you, keep calm. You have the right not to sign anything and not to say anything. You have the right to remain silent, also the right to ask for an attorney. Let me let you hear a piece of this. This was put together by Unite Here Local One Workers Union in Chicago. Si la migra llega a detenerte, mantén la calma. Tienes el derecho de no firmar nada y no decir nada. Tienes el derecho de permanecer callado. También el derecho de pedir 
It's very catchy. I love it. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I love it. Uh, and, you know, some people are very upset about this, but what? they Why said are they this. Upset about well, it? just because, you know, you're, because the same reason that, you know, you shouldn't be if you're not here legally. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought proponents of immigration. I thought proponents of this. Well, no, rights, no, 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 no. Yeah. Rights people. So this reminds me of years ago. I don't know if you guys remember, but I can't I can't remember what organization was. I think it was the American Stroke Association, or but it was about strokes. Mm. They decided to create a campaign. Again, it was a very catchy song with the steps of what to do and how to recognize a stroke. It was literally a cumbia song with all these steps. The response that they got, it, it was unbelievable. It was an education campaign, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And then to reach out to this community, to Spanish speakers like this, it was amazing. Everyone was singing the song every time it came on the radio. It was it was a radio ad. And again, the results that they saw were impressive. And it's the same thing that I thought, you know, why not? But those mm-hmm. are rights. I mean, let's yeah. be real. The, yeah, no matter those you are, like are the rights. Pe- those are rights. And ICE would be the last people in the world, they tell you all the time and having covered immigration stories for years and talking with ICE, the last thing they want people to do is like know their rights. So right. if there's a band that wants to do it in a cumbia version, because it does get very heady when, you know, when you see, you know, you see these like posters in Spanish and they're probably or poorly cards translated and, cards mm-hmm. and everything. If it comes through a ringtone mm-hmm. where people can just be like, oh yeah, like I get it. Like, I think it's effective. It's completely legal. Like, yeah. and like I said, it's like ICE, they're probably like, they wouldn't want it, and that's good. And in fact, people should get educated about their rights in, in this country. Well, it's just interesting. I, I thought it was interesting that a local organization did it, and this one, as I said, is based in Chicago and um, I guess Indiana as well. And so far, it's catching on, needless to say, because kind of be be a little bit of an earworm. It has a little beat to it, and you can... If that's the number one song in America, that's a red, like Despacito down the road, then then that would say something. Right. So, but as we said, the the sentiment expressed in Spanish and when translated to English has to do with very serious issues, which is about knowing your rights, which leads me to a story about Jessica Colotto. 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 She's a dreamer, and those are those uh, young people who were brought here by their parents or or some family member didn't come on their own, were brought when they were very young. And this rule was created for them, particularly under President Obama, to uh, give them really sort of a, a protection uh, from some of the other kinds of legal ramifications that are they're happening for people who are here mm-hmm. uh, undocumented. So they're undocumented, but they have a special status. And even President Trump, who is not a fan, as we know, of uh, undocumented immigrants, has said he was going to leave the Dreamers alone. The Dreamers had a special status even for him, though something hadn't happened yet. Well, as we know, because we've talked here about the new ICE, that's uh, the immigration officials have changed their priorities So now it seems to me that it's come together with the ICE changing its priorities of who needs to be deported or arrested. And this young woman is now uh, fighting for her right to stay here because her DACA status as deferred action for childhood arrivals has been revoked. And they say it's because of a 2010 arrest for driving without a license, which under anybody else, particularly under President Obama, would not be considered, you know, anything to be— And her hearing was was, uh, last Thursday— and what's interesting is that ICE has admitted that the conviction there was there's no conviction and there's no charge and and she said that she submitted a false address yeah. to law enforcement but her family was moving at the time and this is a perfect example of a dreamer who has taken advantage of DACA graduated from college is a community leader is a paralegal 
gives back to the community. The um, American Civil Liberties Union has taken on the case, so they are now representing her. Right. What's interesting is like the federal government has admitted there were no charges so against her. And well, they're going to decide her fate on whether she gets supported uh, later this week. But they admitted that she has no conviction. Right. But she still needs to get deported. To me, it's just a story about nothing is settled, even no. if it's settled. Exactly. Marcella, I got about 30 seconds for you to respond to this. I mean, this is just another uh, reflection of that, the fact that there are no priorities in this administration. Anybody can get deported anytime, including DACA holders. Right. Because they say that they reserve the right of even revoking that status at any moment. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you Kelly. <laughs> Julio Ricardo Varela is a digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, the co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and the founder of Latina Rebels. And Marcela Garcia is a bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist, and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Coming up, what happens when a budding rapper combines his faith, a love of literature, and a message of social justice? A historic thesis project is born. We sit down with Obasi Shaw, the writer and composer of the rap album Liminal Minds. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley. 